Yes, God, I just agree with Marvin. May your spirit open up the eyes of our heart. May you speak in ways this morning, God, where we don't leave thinking, wow, that was a great experience or performance, but we feel like we heard from you today. I feel like we were encouraged, strengthened. And God, I just know for all of us, we, we come into this place from very different, with different circumstances and different things happening in our lives. But I'm so grateful, Lord, that even right now as we look at your word, that you have a way with us. And you have a way that is transcendent that this word can speak to each of us in our particular circumstances. I pray right now, Lord, that we would unplug from the distractions of today, from the discouragements of this week, and maybe even this year, and that right now we would just, as children of God, sit in your arms with expectant hearts to hear from you. Speak, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray this together in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I have a question for you to think about this morning. And the question is this. What do you do with that voice in your head? What do you do with that voice in your head? That voice that when you enter into a room or when you find yourself undistracted, it starts to speak things into you. Just yes, as I was thinking about this sermon and thinking about this passage this week, I was, uh, went for a run with my friend Wes yesterday. And on this run, uh, I made the horrible mistake of not having drank any water to the run. It was like 11 o'clock and I had just had coffee. And I told Wes, you know, there's, there's water in coffee so it should do the trick, right? Um, but we're about uh, three miles into the run and I start to get really, 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 really thirsty and my legs start to get really, really uh, in a lot of pain. I start to really hurt. And I start having this conversation with myself about the run. We kind of have this agreement when we run that we're never going to walk, that we're always going to run. And yes, sometimes my run looks like a walk. It may be more of like a 14-minute mile pace at some times, but we're always running. And I remember at about the three-mile mark, I start having this conversation or this voice in my head that says, Logan, listen, just call it in. Like, you didn't, you're thirsty, you're, you, you need some water, you may die if you stop, if you don't stop running. Um, it's okay. No one's going to see you. It's okay. Wes will understand. And, and, I, and I was thinking about this sermon and thinking about the, this conversation I'm having in my head. And I was thinking about this moment right now and all of you. And whenever we walk into rooms or whenever we find ourselves in a thoughtful state, we have these voices in our heads. And they come at some of the most unfortunate times. Maybe you're a 
you're a youth, you're a teenager, and you're thinking about the football team, or you're thinking about the, the, the soccer team, or the volleyball team, and, and maybe, maybe you, you make an error. You throw an interception. You miss a hit. And all of a sudden, this voice in your head starts to say, you are so bad. You, you let your whole team down. Or you're on the bench, and this voice in your head starts to think, you, you, you can't do this. Maybe you're, you're, you're at school and, and you're struggling with learning and you're struggling with, with grasping things and you're struggling with your homework and this voice seems to keep saying, you're stupid. You're never gonna get this. Maybe for some of us, we actually, this voice actually has started to uh, become kind of the voice of our parents when we were young. And we hear these voices in our heads throughout, and, and they're voices of, you know what, everybody thinks you have it together, but eventually, they're gonna find out. Eventually, they're gonna know that you are unqualified, you are incapable, and you're gonna let everybody down. And you need to be perfect. And there's no room for imperfection, and there's no room for failure. So we find ourselves in, this, in this, this need to work harder and it's exhausting and it creates these anxieties. There's a word for it today, it's called what, what psychologists will call the imposter syndrome. You heard of this? We've talked about it here before, I think it's, 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 it's a prevalent truth. According to psychology today, around 25 to 30% of high achievers may suffer from imposter syndrome. And around 70% of adults may experience imposterism at least once in their lifetime. It's, it continues in this article, says, people who struggle with imposter syndrome believe that they are undeserving of their achievements and the high esteem in which they have. In fact, generally held, they feel that they aren't as competent or intelligent as others might think, and that soon enough, people will discover the truth about them. This can manifest itself in your marriage. It can manifest itself in your, with your children. It can manifest yourself, itself in, in your work. In a hard year. And we find ourselves listening to these voices. This idea of the imposter is actually not new. In the scriptures that we read, Paul is actually talking about the same thing. We've read about this in Romans chapter six and seven, but he calls this imposter something else. He calls this imposter the law. It's this law, and in the Old Testament, the law was, was the requirements of the people to be right in the eyes of God. It was, it was all of the do's and all of the to-don'ts that the people of God, the Hebrew people, had to follow in order to be considered the people of God and to be in the presence of God himself. And this law would, would oftentimes just wreck the people. They, they constantly find themselves falling short. And Paul is writing about this law, this imposter, time and time again in Romans. He's, he's building up to this. And, he's, and in this chapter, in chapter 8, he, he writes about the Spirit. 
And if you remember, he writes about how we were born under one Adam, but now we have a new Adam and a new way, and he says that you are no longer a slave to sin, but you are what? Child of God. And this is the gospel truth that Paul is communicating to you and me as we navigate those voices, that imposter in our lives. This is the gospel truth. I am no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. Now, this fear here, people have used this verse to, to, to say, you know what, this means that I'm never afraid of anything. I can go into the most dangerous circumstances, and, and it's all about courage. But honestly, if you look at the context of Romans, what Paul is writing about when he says, I'm no longer a slave to fear, he's talking about the imposter. He's talking about the law. He's talking to the, to the, the people of God about this fear that, that, that they just can't get it right before God. That they know the law, they know the do's, and they know the don'ts, and there's these anxieties in them because they're falling short. Remember Romans chapter three, all have sinned, all have fallen short. And Paul is making the statement because of the gospel that he's not ashamed of, and it's power that we are no longer Slaves to that fear. We are a child of God. Look what he says. It says in verse 14, he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, this word sons of God, it can be, we can wrongly interpret this as, as we, we want a more neutral, gender-specific children of God, but you're actually missing a point that Paul is making here. He's using the word sons of God because this is what I like to call a hyperlink. In our, in our day, we, we see, you know, when you have a hyperlink, you click on it and it takes you somewhere. This is like an Old Testament hyperlink to biblical culture. When you see sons of God, this is talking about inheritance. This is talking about the son who would get an inheritance from the father who would become an heir. And so it's not just about being a part of God's family. It's about an actual, as we'll unpack this a little bit more, even more than that about being an heir of God. There's this responsibility and this authority here. Sons of God. And this is the, the gospel truth that Paul wants you and me as we struggle through life, as we find ourselves in those moments when we walk into a room or maybe you walk into a church service and you're thinking, wow, I really don't feel like I belong. Paul wants the people who have confessed faith in Jesus to know this truth. I'm no longer a slave to that fear. Don't listen to that lie. I'm a child of God. And then he unpacks this with what I would say would be three gospel truths to help us understand what it looks like to be a child or an heir of God. And the first is this, adoption. It's this incredible, beautiful truth that you and I, because of Jesus and what he has done, can cry out to the Father. We can cry out to the Father. It's not just that like we, he's our God and we worship him and, and there's this far off relationship. No, there's this intimacy that we have 
to the Father himself. Look at what it says in verse 15. Look at Paul unpack this beautiful reality of adoption. It says this. For you, talking to the believer, did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Fear. Imposter. But you, believer, have received the spirit of adoption. Circle that word. Highlight that word. Star that word. Underline that word. Adoption as sons by whom we cry. Abba, Father. One of the commentaries said this, is this, this idea of adoption, it's not just about status. It's not just saying that like I'm justified and therefore my sins are forgiven. It's also about a heart. We have not only the status, but the heart of children of God. Not just this like, mental a sense about my relationship with God, but, but we believe that Jesus changes everything and, and I now have a heart that can cry out to the Father, I am adopted. Now if you've been in the world of adoption, it's one thing to um, declare yourself adopted or to be adopted, it's another thing to be attached. In adoption training, they talk about how it takes a time for children to truly attach to their parents. There's this attachment training that you must, must do. And Paul, I believe here, is writing to us as adopted sons and daughters of God that we have this help as we look at being attached to the Father. And it's not just adoption, it's also the second piece, which I would call assurance. Assurance, my spirit, who I am, listens to the spirit. Remember, Romans 8 is about the spirit of God and its work. Look at what it says in verse 16. It says, the spirit himself, remember the spirit, the second person of the Trinity, God himself bears witness, circle that word witness, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Tim Keller in his commentary says, picture a courtroom scene. And you're testifying and, and, and you're in that scene and we, we've understood that there's a justification by faith. We've understood this, there's this argument or, or maybe, or maybe you, you, you think about your favorite uh, courtroom TV series or movie. And there's this moment in all of those TV series or this, these, these movies where a witness comes in and the witness gives testimony. And as soon as that testimony is declared, what happens? You know it's over. You know that the case is done. You know that the evidence can stand. And here Paul is saying, as we struggle with the imposter, as you struggle with those voices, he's saying God himself is testifying for you that you are a child of God. And the way that he testifies is sometimes he will speak these truths into you. Sometimes he will speak by his word. He will speak through the songs we sing. But also he will testify through the fruit that is growing in you. I love how Marvin in his prayer talked about the fruit of the Spirit today. 
that we believe that as, as children of God, that the Spirit itself grows in us fruit. And there's moments when the imposter is telling you, you are not enough, you can't do it, you're too thirsty, you're too, they're gonna find out. And then you start looking at your life, and I believe you will start to see little itty-bitty tastes of what God has been doing in you. Little taste of the change that is happening, not because of who you are or what you've done, but because of whose you are and what Christ is doing in you. So we have this beautiful truth of adoption, we have this wonderful comfort of assurance, and then we have this powerful call to authority. I am a co-heir with the son. Notice the father, son, and spirit theme here in these three verses. You see it beautifully. Adoption, I'm adopted to the father. Assurance, I'm assured by the spirit. Authority, I have the same authority with Christ himself, the son. And this authority, I think, is really important. If you have time, I would encourage you to go read Galatians chapter four. Paul unpacks the same idea in Galatians about how as children of God, we're not just like these useless, broken, worthless humans. Because of what Christ has done, we are now called to join him in work. And as co-heirs, there is a responsibility to that. Have you thought about that as a Christian? That when you, when you come, when you become a child of God, you now have responsibility. And it actually goes back to the garden. Think about, remember last week, uh, Matt preached on, on our call to work, and actually work was created for us before the fall. We were called to work the garden. We were called to be stewards of the garden. We are called to work as children of God. Work is good. And we are being called in to this work. And this work, there's also this potential. We must labor. There will be suffering in this world. You will have trial. You will suffer. And we're going to talk more about that suffering in the coming verses next week. But as you work, as you labor in the call of the kingdom, in the call of King Jesus reigning in our hearts, you also have this reality of an inheritance that is going to come. We call this the already not yet eschatology. It's the already, Jesus is here, he's reigning, the spirit is testifying, it's happening, the, the paradise itself is breaking through. But yet, I know that an inheritance is coming and a glory is coming. And I'm looking forward to that and anticipating that. This is what it means to be a child of God. But don't miss here, it's hard work. I mean, look at the language here. We tend to gloss over this little verse here. Look at verse 17, it says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, responsibility, and fellow heirs, heirs with Christ, provided, oh man, provided, <laughs> we do what? Enjoy perfection, Enjoy comfort, 
enjoy safety and security. Suffer. But notice here, suffer what? With him. Notice where Christ is in this call to our work, this call to our authority we have, in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's the inheritance that's going to come. That's the assurance that we believe that this life is not the end. That we are being prepared for something beautiful and glorious. I think about my runs and they're always really painful and horrible, but I always have the pool at the end to fall into. And I'm like, it's just like glorious. It's Hazelek. <laughs> it's just comfort. And beloved, this is what, what Paul is challenging you and me to embrace and to to speak into that imposter, those voices that are, that, are, that, are, that are yelling at you and screaming in the theater of your mind about who you are and what you can do and, and, and what your life should be. And I believe that, that there are these gospel implications and really if we just walk back these three points, they should speak into the way that we live. And before we get into those three points, I would, I would say that we, above all, as we think about those voices that are speaking into, into us, those imposter voices, those voices that probably as you were walking into church and you had to rub shoulders and be around a bunch of other human beings, you probably felt those voices saying things about who you are, saying things about how your week has been, saying things about what, what you think people think about you, Already we have to deal with those voices. And I believe here Paul is saying, as children of God, we are to be a people that are singing God's grace to ourselves. I've been thinking about this all week. And on Thursday this week, I was doing my morning devotion and I was reflecting on one of the Psalms where, where the psalmist David is, he cries out to the Lord. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. And he's in this moment of, of deep anguish and pain and, and you could tell he's struggling. He's having a really hard week. He's getting overwhelmed with, with some horrible things that are happening in his life. And, and in that devotional, there was a quote from a, a preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd it says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact, hear this, that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to yourself? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment in this psalm was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. 
Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He asked. His soul had been repressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. I think for some of us, we need to have these moments of clarity where we stop listening to, those, to that voice and we start having a conversation with ourself. And we start talking the truth about who God says we are to that imposter. I've been reading this book by a guy named Brennan Manning. It's a book called Abba Father. It's related to this exact passage here and this call to be a people that cry out to God as Abba Father. In this book, he says this. He writes about this truth. And he says, my false self staggers into each day with an insatiable appetite for affirmation. With my cardboard facade intact, I enter a room full of people preceded by a muted trumpet. Here I am. Whereas my true self, hidden with Christ and God, cries, oh, there you are. There you are. Think about Jesus. Think about his walk here on earth and the people he interacted with. Think about these, these uncomfortable, rough and tumble fishermen. And Jesus is walking and he says, oh, there you are. I'm going to call you to be not just fishers. I'm going to call you to be fishers of men. Think of the woman at the well. And she has all of these voices that have been saying, this is who you are. You are an adulteress. You, you find all of your, 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 your identity in other relationships. And Jesus says, no, there you are. Think of Nicodemus, the Pharisee who grew up in the, the legalism and the, the legalistic law and trying to follow everything else. And Jesus says, oh, there you are. You must be born again. Think of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the wee little man. And the way that Jesus steps into the room and he sees you and he says, there you are. We sing grace to ourselves. At the end of this chapter on the imposter, Brennan Manning, he, he, he writes this letter to the imposter. And I love this moment. He says this. He says, the bottom line, my pampered playmate, is that you are both needy and selfish. You need care, love, and a safe dwelling place. My gift is to take you where unknowingly you have longed to be, into the presence of Jesus. Your days of running riot are history. From now on, you slow down, slow very down. In his presence, I notice that you've already began to shrink. Want to know something, little guy? You're much more attractive that way. I am nicknaming you Pee-wee. <laughs> Naturally, you're not going to roll over suddenly and die. I know you will get disgruntled at times and start to act out, but... The longer you spend time in the presence of Jesus, the more accustomed you grow to his face. 
the less adulation you will need because you will have discovered for yourself that he is enough. And in the presence, you will delight in the discovery of what it means to live by grace and not by performance. Church, we are a people that sing God's grace to ourselves. Stop listening and start talking to that voice. As I was originally thinking about this sermon, I was gonna kinda come across like, we need to knock that voice out. We're gonna hit him with a one-two punch. But as I was reflecting on this, I think the Lord was telling me, telling us, that there needs to be this gentleness with that voice because that voice is, is it's you. It's, it's you. And, and what you need, what that voice needs is to be redeemed and needs to experience Jesus. And so we need to get that voice into the very presence of Jesus who changes everything. It's his grace. And so it's not about like, just like destroying that voice. No, it's this gentle call to come to Jesus. So to me, it seems to me as we look at this that there's three, three implications and we're gonna land with these three and we're gonna go quickly. First, we need to join Christ in his work. If you are a child of God, you need to join Christ in his work. To go from here I am, trumpet, muted trumpet sounding, to there you are. We need to join Christ in his work. Ephesians chapter two says this, is but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great what? Love for us, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he did what? Made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, co-heirs, alive, to rule, to reign, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are called to join Christ in his work. When we say, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're saying Jesus is doing something in us. I was thinking about that just, just this last week when we got to take communion together. And this incredible invitation from God that the most important thing we can do is to eat of his body and drink of his blood. Because he's the one that's doing a work in us. And when we go out, I, 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 communion is meant to be ascending. Ascending of the people of God to go and to do the work of sons and daughters of the king. But second, hear this, we listen to the Spirit's witness. Remember, the second piece of this is that the Spirit testifies, and perhaps we've listened to other voices, and we need to have space to hear what the Spirit is saying about who we are. And this may happen by just simply going into solitude, having some silence, listening to some worship music, most likely reading the word of God, most likely in faith community, being reminded of who you are. 
being reminded of the fruit that God is doing with you? As I was running and feeling like I was dying yesterday, I was running and there was a truck that pulled over to the side of the road and I thought, oh, maybe that's someone who knows me. Maybe they have a cup of water. <laughs> and I was, I was running by them and the truck was empty. And funny enough, it was the Chachilla Water District that was standing there. <laughs> and I started thinking about this thirst that we have. And I was reminded that the church itself, the bride of Christ and the Holy Spirit are constantly reminding us that we are called to come to Jesus and have this thirst quenched, our thirst quenched by his work. In the final verses of the scriptures in Revelation, you can see this call. Look at what Revelation 22 says. It says, the spirit and the bride, the bride is the church, and the Spirit is the Spirit of God. It says this, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, grace, I don't know what you're going, going through, but I know that the gospel call is that we are to be a people that come. And we get beat up by that imposter. We get so beat up by the law and by the things that, uh, that, we, that we put on ourselves. We get so beat up by our flesh and the Lord is telling you and he's telling me today, come. I'm no longer a slave to that fear. I'm a child of God. And finally, hear this, church. Perhaps you don't feel like you can come. Perhaps you don't feel like you can work. Do not miss the adoption piece. That we are a people who, if you're in a place where you don't even think you can take a step, God calls you to do one other thing and that's to cry out to the Father. It's to cry out, Abba, Father. Abba. And I don't think this means that you're supposed to have some sort of like daddy conversation with God. I think this is a statement about your relationship and it's not about him being your daddy, it's about distance. It's about intimacy. It's about access. In moments of desperation, and you know why I know this, Abba Father is, is reminding you, do you know the, where this originates? The only other time in scriptures that you see Abba Father is on the lips of Jesus. And, and in the moment that Jesus cries out, Abba Father, do you know what he's doing? He's in a garden thinking about you, thinking about me, thinking about the cross. And he says, Abba Father, if, this, if, if anything could, could pass away, take this cup from me. And he cries out in desperation, but you know what Jesus does? He goes to the cross. And on that cross, for the first time when Jesus talks about God, he doesn't call him Father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Timothy Keller says this, 
the only time in all the Gospels that Jesus Christ prays to God and doesn't call him Father is on the cross. What he loses, we gain. You can cry out to Abba Father because Christ took on our pain. I want to close by just reading through Psalm 34. If you could, if you just close your eyes. Perhaps think about the your week. Perhaps think about the voices that seem to be screaming at you even today. The song that Amador sang says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. Why? It says, I sought the Lord. I cried out and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Spirit of God, I pray in this moment as we prepare our hearts to respond in worship, I pray, God, as we get ready to sing, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm no longer a slave to those voices, to that imposter. I am a child of God, and I bring those voices to you, Jesus. And we sing of your grace because we believe, we confess with our faith that you are good, and we will taste and we will see your goodness today. And I pray, Spirit of God, in this moment, that right now we would just provide a tender moment for all who are here. And that we would be able to just respond not as some religious rite, not from some place of earning or perfection, but that we would respond as a child who cries out to his father to her father Abba Father and that we would just sing the grace that you've given us to each other have your way God come Lord Jesus come Amen